Let's pray. Father in heaven, the words that we have been singing, reciting, listening to are living words pointing to the living word, our Savior Jesus. From your own scriptures, we hear that incredible statement, if God is for us, who can be against us? As we open your word now to this remarkable account of these women who went to see you or your body and discovered you had, you had raised from the dead, God, I pray that our eyes would see it anew as if for the first time, if we would be struck and astonished as they were. We are grateful for this time, for your powerful work, Holy Spirit, and ask your blessings upon us all now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read from the last part of Mark's gospel, which is chapter 16. I'm going to read through verse 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stones for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. As a pastor, people often say, and strange things to me. This morning was an example. Very, very early, long before most of you were awake, I was beginning to make my way to the church. And as I walked out to my car and parked in the front, I saw my white cross and knew that I needed to turn it around to signify the reality of what we're celebrating today, that Jesus indeed is risen. So I went and lifted the white cross out of the ground, turned it around, when all of a sudden I heard one of my neighbors an elderly man who shouted, he's risen. And I was stunned. I'll admit it. Initially by someone else being awake, but also by how loud he was at this hour in the morning. I can't wait to see if my wife heard him. And I responded back, he's risen indeed. And then he said to me, knock him dead, pastor. I don't even know what that means <laughs> on Resurrection Sunday. It really happened. And this really happened. These women were there. And they had been walking with Jesus a long time. Imagine what that means. They were in fellowship 
with the only perfect man to ever live a life of perfection all the way to the end. Never an inappropriate emotion, word, thought. Never sinning. You've never been around someone like that, but they were. Some of them for perhaps three years. And now they have watched this man. Jesus was a full man, fully, fully man, fully God. They had watched this man be brutally killed on the cross. The women stood and witnessed it. They saw his hands. They saw his feet. They saw his side. These women had also seen the body of Christ taken to this particular tomb where he was placed by Joseph of Arimathea. And then as the sun set and the Sabbath hit, they went away. We're told that they bought spices. And on this morning, they were preparing to come seeking to see the body of Jesus, to anoint it with the spices. No one who was a follower of Jesus expected him to be alive. No one. There wasn't a disciple who's not included in this account who was saying, you know, he did say he would rise. Is it worth going and taking a look? No one. These women are not walking towards the tomb wondering, do you think he might be alive? Do you think it's possible? None of them. No one expected him to be alive. In fact, as they're walking, the thought, it seems to dawn on them, who's going to move the stone for us? This was a massive stone. There's no way these women could move it. Yet they're going. They're going to see the body of Christ to anoint it with no expectation of what they're about to see and what they're about to hear. As we move into the text, I want us to, to pay attention to these women. It's really powerful that the gospel writers would include their testimony, and here's why. If this was a make-believe story, the authors would never have included women as the primary eyewitnesses. The credibility of a woman's testimony had no value in that day and age. How powerful that God uses, once again, these countercultural realities to extend his kingdom. The reason the women are included is because this is the way it really happened. They didn't expect him to be alive, but they were going to care for his body. It's very powerful. When a pastor opens the word of God and begins to think about the sermon and begins to listen to the Lord, there are a number of questions that we ask about a text. And one of them is this, what do we have in common with those two or four or by whom the passage was written that requires the grace of the text. Let me say it again. What do we have in common with those two or four whom the passage was written that requires the grace of the text? So let's begin there. One thing that we have in common with these women is we understand something of the pain of losing someone we love, something of a broken heart, and you have to see that. Again, these women had fallen this man. They'd been following him with the other disciples. They listened to his teaching. They saw the miraculous things that he did. They saw his character, which would have been the fruit of the spirit exemplified with perfection. Imagine that 
all the time. A man who is perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly generous, perfectly selfless. Imagine that's what they knew. And now they've witnessed him die this brutal, brutal death. It really happened. They witnessed the body taken down. They witnessed it put in the tomb and their hearts are broken. You know what it's like to have a broken heart. I remember years ago when we still lived in St. Louis, it was a Friday night, me and one of the other volunteers that worked with me in our youth ministry had gone to watch a high school football game. We were coming back, it was about 10 to 11. He was really hungry, so we decided to stop at a Red Robin to get a burger. They were about to close, but they welcomed us in. They set us in this one section, and pretty soon the waitress came to our table. She didn't seem to be too annoyed that we were late. She was kind of friendly. And according to my friend who was single, she's really cute. And so he said to me, what do you think I should say to her? I said, probably nothing. <laughs> he said, no, really, what should I say? I said, why, why don't you just ask her, just for fun, if she could create anything, what would she create? He was like, okay. So she came to the table. She took our drink orders. And he said, I have a question for you. If you could create anything, what would you create? And probably in a little bit of a flirtatious way, she said, I love that question. I'll be back. About a minute or two later, she comes back with our drinks and she says, I have my answer. We both looked at her and she said, a cure for the broken heart. Dropped our glasses on the table and walked away. He looked at me and said, what am I supposed to say now? <laughs> I just said, I'll, I'll take it from here. <laughs> she came back. I didn't look at her. I just said, who broke your heart? Because the restaurant was closing and she probably wasn't interested in helping with all that. She sat right next to me and told me her story. How she had a newborn out of wedlock and the man that said he loved her had left them. This was not her dream. Her heart really had been broken. And as I listened to her, I then shared the truth of the word of God, not in a flippant, not in a shallow way, not in a way that makes it sound like a fairy tale that all good things come true, the true gospel, that there was a man named Jesus who was God. And he came to this earth himself to draw near to us so that his very own heart, his human heart, could be broken as he took on the weight of all our sins. His heart literally did break. When the Roman soldier put the spear in his side, the mixture that came out was blood and water, signifying a heart that had burst. Jesus died from a broken heart which is powerful because the Psalms sing of how Jesus, the Father and the Spirit, love the brokenhearted. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. Jesus Christ is the cure for the broken heart. Not just a bad day, not just a bad season, but truly a heart that is broken. He himself experienced that so that all who would rest in him and trust in him could live forever without that broken heart, could live forever in paradise as we've been singing, 
could live forever in the reality of what we are celebrating today. You know what it feels like to have a broken heart. Some of you have had a relationship that ended badly. Some of you are lonely because you haven't had a relationship that you've longed for that started. Maybe you've longed for a child and the Lord has not given yet. And that breaks your heart and your husband's heart. Maybe you have had children in the condition of their own heart. Maybe it's rebellion or maybe their own heart has been broken, whether they're little or old. And it breaks your heart. Our relationships, because of the fall of man, are so broken by sin. Adam and Eve sin. The first thing that happens is their, their relationship is broken. Their relationship with the father is broken. They conceive. They have twins. One twin kills the other. And such is the way it begins with man. You know what it's like to have a broken heart. These women are approaching a grave where a man's body has been placed that they loved. Many, even in this last year, even in the last few months in our own body, have experienced the loss of somebody they love greatly. And it's painful. Your heart might be breaking for our country or our world. You might even feel like today Maybe you're here just as a favor to a friend or loved one that God is the one who broke your heart. Here's what's so amazing about Christianity. He understands that. So what we see that we have in common with these women is what it's like to have a broken heart. There's something else that's really interesting that's easy to miss. The gospel writer Mark, who most likely is just simply writing for Peter, tells us that these women are seeking to see Jesus. Verse six says, and this is the angel speaking to them now. He said to them, do not be alarmed. They were because they saw an angel they didn't expect to see. He says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. He's not here. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. Now, this is, a, this is the big deal. This is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. These women think that they're seeking to see the body of Jesus. What they discover is that he is alive and that he is seeking to see them. From the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, the very first question God asked is, where are you? It's a question he asked after Adam and Eve had disobeyed in sin. It's not that God didn't know where they were. It's not that he lacked knowledge or his presence. He was indicating early in the Bible, this living word that he's coming for his people. Where are you? Adam speaks, we were afraid because we were naked, so we hid. God's second question, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to? And the sin of man unfolds. It's very powerful. Genesis 3. The women are seeking to see the body of Jesus. 
That's it. No expectation that he's alive. None of the men following them with the expectation or even faint hope that he's alive. And when they seek to see Jesus, they discover Jesus is seeking to see them. That's Christianity. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, at some point you discover that. You may have thought it was you seeking Jesus, and indeed you were, but behind the scenes, he was moving towards you. It's incredible. You may be here today with very little expectation, maybe even just as a favor, and you might discover it's because he's actually seeking you. Whenever we seek Jesus, truly seek him, we always discover that there is so much more waiting for us. These women are seeking to see the body of Jesus, which they will not see, not this day, but they will hear the one you're seeking has risen. He's alive. And he will see you in Galilee. Go and tell the others. This really happened. This is amazing. The resurrection story is not just a springtime upper. It's not just a time where we kind of moving through the season, see these beautiful things budding and then hope to have some sustained emotional lift to bring us happiness. Like a red bud for a few weeks or a dogwood for a few weeks or azaleas for a few days. The resurrection story is not primarily about this emotional lift. It's a reality that reminds us because Jesus rose from the dead, all who are in him are going to rise too. What they're going to see when they see Jesus, the one seeking them, is his wounds. And this is significant. They're going to see his wounds. And why it's significant is because when they first saw Jesus nailed to the cross, when they heard of the spear going into his side, they thought that those wounds had ruined their life. Their leader that they thought would set them free from the tyranny of Rome was dead. They thought those wounds had destroyed what they were after. They had a different vision for Jesus. But what they discover when they see him is it's those wounds that have resurrected their life. Those wounds that have given them life. And what that tells us is that indeed when Jesus said he would suffer, he understands our suffering. You too have wounds. You have scars. And God doesn't waste those. There's going to be a time where all who are in Christ are going to be relieved from that broken heart, from that pain. It will not be the sight of heaven, but it will be forever with him for all who are in him. And why that matters is this. The more fully we live in that future promise to the degree that this future promise is real to you, that which is coming for all who are in Christ, to the degree that that future promise is real to you, it will change everything about how you live in the present. Everything. Because this is not as good as it gets the wealth that you're, 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 you're tempted to put all your security in is not the greatest wealth you're ever gonna have. 
the body that you're tempted to preserve, to make look as young as possible, as long as possible, is not the only body you're ever going to have. You're going to have a resurrected body, a perfect body. For those who are in Christ, there will be a day when we enter into his kingdom and there truly will never be again any tears. No more tears. You will never again say, I wonder if I'm enough. You will never say, I wonder what I should wear. Or I wonder if this treatment will work. You will never complain once for all eternity. And you'll never hear a complaint. Not once. You will never say, you know, if only because there's no way it can be improved. That's the promise. And the more fully we live in that future hope to the degree that this future promise is real to us, it will change everything about how you live in the present. Something's breaking your heart, I know. And something else will. But there is a day when that broken heart will be mended forever. You may think that you're seeking Jesus, and you are. But what's astonishing is that he's seeking you. There's one more thing I want us to see. And this is not something that we have in common, but something I'm afraid we don't. It's really striking that Mark would end his gospel with these words. Look with me at verse eight. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. That's where the oldest manuscripts end. Some think that maybe the last section was lost. The section you might have in your Bible is just a collection or a summary. But many scholars think, no, this is exactly how Mark wanted to end. Because his favorite word throughout this whole gospel has been astonished. And these women who went to see Jesus, his body, not the living Jesus, who went to see his body, have discovered something beyond anything that they could have imagined. He's not here. He has risen. He's alive. He will see you in Galilee. He's making plans for it. Tell his disciples and Peter. How powerful is that? Peter's the one telling this story to Mark. Mark is writing it down. It's powerful because Peter was the one who said, if they all fall away, I never will. Even if they all deny you, I never will. If I have to die for you, I'll die for you. But Jesus said before the rooster crows, twice, you will deny me three times. But Jesus is waiting for him. He's waiting to show him, to restore him. So Mark closes his gospel in a very powerful way. The women fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. The word trembling in the Greek means tremor. It means a person is shaking out of control. This isn't an emotion that they generated. This is the reality 
of expecting to see a dead man that you watch be murdered and you're going to put spices on his body, anoint him. And now you're told by a, an angel that he's alive and you're going to see him again. They remembered Lazarus. Jesus rose somebody from the dead and others, we know. But now he's alive. They're trembling. The second word that Mark uses is one of his favorites, astonished. And astonished in our language really means ecstasy. They're having an experience that is almost outer body. They, they can't quite control themselves for what they've seen and heard. And I think that's exactly where Mark wanted to leave us. Because that's how people responded to the real Jesus. I want to read something to you now that was written about 20 years ago, maybe a little over. It was by a man named Mike Iaconelli, and Mike founded a ministry called Youth Specialties. And he was speaking about the condition of the church, and he had some pretty strong words of warning about what he was seeing, particularly in how the generation that was coming looked at the church. Here's what he writes. It's worth listening to. The tragedy of modern faith, and what he means by that is Christianity, the tragedy of modern faith, Christianity, is that we no longer are capable of being terrified. What he's talking about is an appropriate fear of the living God, an appropriate fear of a God who has done everything necessary, including sending his own son to die for us, a God who's accomplished all that would be required for us to live with him forever. He writes, we aren't afraid of God. We aren't afraid of Jesus. We aren't afraid of the Holy Spirit. As a result, we've ended up with a need-centered gospel that attracts thousands, but transforms no one. What happened? What happened to the bone-chilling, earth-shattering, gut-wrenching, knee-knocking, heart-stopping, life-changing fear that left us speechless? paralyzed, helpless? What happened to those moments when you and I would open our Bibles and our hands started shaking because we were afraid of the truth we might find there? We are afraid of unemployment. We are afraid of our cities. We are afraid of the collapse of our government. We are afraid of not being fulfilled. But we are not afraid of God. I would like to suggest, he writes, that the church become a place where God continually has to tell us, fear not. A place where our relationship with God is not a simple belief or worldview. It is God's burning presence in our lives. I am suggesting that the tame God of relevance be replaced by the God whose very presence shatters our egos into dust, burns our sins into ashes, and strips us naked to reveal the real person within, the beloved children of the living God. The church needs to become a gloriously dangerous place where nothing is safe in God's presence 
except us. Nothing, including your plans, your agendas, our priorities, our politics, our money, our security, our comfort, our possessions, our needs. We have to be more in awe of God. Our God is perfectly capable of calming the storm or putting us into the middle of one. Either way, if it's God, we will be speechless and trembling. Our world is tired of people whose God is tame. It's longing to see people whose God is big and holy and frightening and gentle and tender and ours. A God whose love frightens us into his strong and powerful arms where he longs to whisper those terrifying words, I love you. I think that's awesome. I imagine some of you had the vision of Lucy and Mr. Beaver from Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Or Aslan, the Christ figure, is before them. Lucy speaks, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? Mr. Beaver speaks, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. We've lost that holy, reverent fear and awe and wonder. And some would think that, well, that would push people away, but it doesn't. That's the paradox. He's all those things, all powerful, all knowing, all wise. There's nothing about you he can learn. And that draws us in. Elizabeth Wan, an author, wrote a book titled The End of Me. Listen to the subtitle. The End of Me, Finding Resurrection Life in the Daily Sacrifices of Motherhood. What an incredible title. Here's what she says about the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is not about keeping our distance from God, but about drawing near to him. When we fear him, we come close. We do. Because he has come close to us. When we fear him, we seek him and we discover He's seeking us. How do you get there? Well, this is what's so powerful about Christianity. You can't. The same God who caused the tremor, that earthquake, that morning, that then rolled the stone away from the, empty, from the tomb where Jesus was laid and now risen, is the only one who can remove the stone from your heart and mine. 
He is the only one who can shake apart the bonds in our life that keep us connected to a security that's nowhere near the security we have in Christ. Here's the good news. That's why he came. He came to break apart those bonds that keep us down. Those strong holds that keep us clinging to the things of this earth as if this is as good as it's going to get. The way in which we live a life seized by, gripped by, trembling and astonishment is a life that says to the Lord, have your way with me. Make me like that. And Jesus himself said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Friends, there is nothing more secure, more beautiful, and more glorious than living in light of that future promise right now. With that living, holy, righteous God living in you from one heartbreak to another until you are with him forever in paradise. That is why the tomb was empty. And that is why the resurrection matters. Every Sunday is resurrection Sunday. And every day is a resurrection day. A day when the mercies of God are given to us again, that we might live in fear and awe and wonder and security in the living God. Hallelujah. Father in heaven, we will lift our voices, singing of our King, and we rejoice that we've discovered again that when we thought we alone were seeking you, you have been seeking us. And that it's in itself, Lord, is astonishing. So would you do what only you can do and cause these words, your words, to press deep into our hearts and minds. If there is one here today who has never trusted you, may this be the moment when they sense that you are opening their eyes and ears and causing their heart to break for you. Rescue them, save them. Friends, simply surrender your life to Christ. And for those who are already in you, Jesus, would you give us this holy appetite, this deep expectation that we have so much in you, so much promise now and so much promise in the future. And would you press that deep into us that it might change the way we live even today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.